Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we have another installment of Contrarian's Canon, where I talk about records that, for some reason, don't have a very good reputation among critics and fans, but I happen to like them, and my co-host in this series, Riley Walker, really likes them too. Uh, So we've already talked about uh, Jesus Freak by DZ Talk. And we talked about The Division Bell by Pink Floyd. Uh, You can go back into our archives and find those episodes. Today we're doing something a little bit different because it's a record that I personally am not a fan of, but Riley loves, and he loves it so much that he recently covered it uh, for an album that's coming out on November 16th. The album is The Lily White Sessions. It's by Dave Matthews Band. Uh, It's a record that actually was never officially released. It was sort of a a lost record for Dave Matthews. Uh, They worked on it in the late 90s. And it was this collection of dark, sort of booze-soaked songs uh, that the band and I guess the label decided not to put out. And then Dave Matthews went out and he recorded, or he wrote a bunch of songs with with Glenn Ballard, a very well-known pop producer. Uh, He was the guy who worked with Alanis Morissette on Jake a Little Pill. They produced this record called Every Day for Dave Matthews Band in 2001. That was a big hit. But the fans were like, hey... Lily White Sessions, this is where the real shit is, the gritty Dave Matthews, this is what we want. So it has this great reputation among fans, and Riley Walker has been a fan since he was a kid, and uh, he made this covers record, which is sort of like an indie rock reimagining of this Dave Matthews record. And uh, we had a really interesting talk, because, you know, Riley was raised on Dave Matthews, and I was raised uh, disliking Dave Matthews. I went to college in the late 90s. If you were in college from like, you know, 96 to 2000, the way I was, Dave Matthews Band was like inescapable. They were a fixture of bro culture <laughs> on every college campus. And, you know, because of that association, it just turned me off. And over the years, I've, I've, I've tried to get into them, you know, to sort of question my own assumptions about this band and and maybe kind of come around because I, you know, I like liking stuff. I like liking bands. I like kind of taking an artist that I had dismissed previously and finding a new way to look at them, so I can at least, if not love that artist, have some sort of appreciation for what they're doing. And I, I've been able to do that with a lot of people. Like I can talk myself into liking a lot of stuff, but Dave Matthews Band has always been a bridge too far for me. So I thought this would be a great opportunity for Riley to make his case. For Dave Matthews Band to talk about this record, the Lily White Sessions, and uh, you know maybe I'll change my mind. You know we'll see. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week's episode, and it is Harry's. And you know if you're someone like me, I've got a beard, and I'm always growing hair out of my face. I got to keep it high and tight, as they say. So I need a good stock of razors in my house to make sure that I look presentable when I leave and go out into the world. And uh, I find that Harry's is one of the best deals that you can get because not only are the razors affordable, they come right to your house. So you don't have to go to the drugstore and have to go through that whole rigmarole. I have a special offer for my listeners because I think you're going to like this. Now, Harry stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision. So they created a trial offer and you can claim yours by going to harrys.com rock. Now, what are you going to get in this offer? Well, in this value trial set, you're going to get your weighted ergonomic handle. You're going to get a five blade razor with lubricating strip and trimmer blade, the rich leathering shave gel and the official travel blade cover, a favorite here at Celebration Rock. Would you say so, Derek? I love it. You know, it's it's funny because I, I went to Austin a few weeks ago and I forgot my travel blade cover and I had to actually go out to the <laughs> drugstore and get razors. And that whole process, oh. with like the everything's been a locked case, you know, and yeah. it's, uh, it's the worst. When you so. shave your head. Right. Yeah. So there's like some so, necessary shaving that needs to occur for me because I got a lot of, lot of area to cover. So whether you're shaving your face, your head or wherever else, and I don't want to know where, you want to go to harrys.com backslash rock 
get your trial set. And not only are you going to get some great razors, you're going to support the podcast. So again, go to harrys.com backslash rock. Harrys.com backslash rock. Okay, so again, this is Contrarian's Canon. We talk about records that have been dismissed or overlooked in music history, and we dig them out and we say, hey, give this record another listen. And not only am I one of the hosts of this show, I'm also a client (laughs) because this week's album is an album that I don't really like, but I want to, you know, maybe see what's, what's cool about it. So Riley Walker, he educated me about Dave Matthews band and, uh, you know, we'll see what I say. So let's get into it. Here's me and Riley Walker talking about the Lily White sessions on the Celebration Rock podcast. So are are you in Brooklyn now? Um, no, I'm currently back in Chicago because I got to grab some gear to move or, uh, to fly to Europe tomorrow. But yes, I'm now a resident of Brooklyn. I've paid the astonishing amount of rent that it requires to live there for a month. <laughs> I, I am in Brooklyn. I live there. Now, I have to give you a little shit for this because, you know, I'm, I'm in the Midwest and, you, and you're moving from the Midwest. I mean, like, why did you decide to become an indie rock cliche? Uh, well, you know, like all great tropes and cliches in the indie rock canon, I, um, uh, I got to move on to bigger and better things. I got to have more late night food. I got to have more, um, tantalizing anxiety and fear in my life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you, you, you're just like big timing Chicago. Is, is that it? I'm one up in you guys, baby. You all enjoy everything back there in the middle of the country, but, uh, I'm uh, I'm out in New York eating bagels and trying to get on guest list to gigs I don't belong at. That's me now. I wear leather jackets and everything. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, you haven't been out there long. I mean, have you been enjoying it? I really do. And, you know, uh, Chicago's and Midwest has always been great to me. And I really thought I would be a lifer. I thought I'd always live and die in Chicago and Illinois. Um, but I don't know. A flip, a switch kind of flipped and... Um, I'm very happy out there. I have a lot more things I want to get working on out there. And uh, But, you know, Chicago's always a $60 round-trip southwest flight away, and I intend on coming back a lot and eating lots of deep-fried foods. That part of me can never go away. You know, I, I drove through your hometown the other day uh, of, of Rockford, Illinois, and, uh, uh, I mean, I was just on the highway, so I didn't actually go into the town. But I, isn't there something called, like, Safari Town or something? Like a, am I getting that wrong? It's like on the side of the highway. It's like a kids' playland or something. Oh, there's a go kart track um, called Volcano Falls. That's it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I remember when it first opened. They had a, you know, like a fake volcano thing. I mean, obviously a fake volcano. The middle of Illinois isn't exactly known for its active volcanoes <laughs> and lava and magma or whatever the shit goes on in those things. But they had a bunch of smoke you know, barreling out of it. So there, everybody was calling in fires, all these concerned, you know, sort of stay-at-home moms and dads were worried that the entire city was burning down. So they had to turn the coolest part of the go-kart track off, which was the smoke. Oh, man. Well, I just want to ask you Rockford questions uh, for the rest of this podcast, but uh, I'm guessing this isn't, like, overly scintillating listening for people. So maybe we should get talking about Dave Matthews' band, the Lily White Sessions, here on another Contrarian's canon episode i'm very excited about this that we're doing this third part in the series and this is going to be like a different episode because we've previously talked about dc talk by uh we talked about jesus freak by dz talk and we talked about the division bell by pink floyd two indisputable classics masterpieces peaks of modern music both of those albums and now we're talking about dave matthews band and this is different because one you recorded a cover of this record that's coming out, what is that, November 16th? That's correct. November 16th. So, and we're going to talk about that later. The other difference is that you love this record, and I do not love this record, and I do not love any Dave Matthews Band records. And I'm kind of hoping in this episode that you can talk me into liking them, because I want to like them. I feel like I should like them, because I generally can talk myself into liking any stadium rock band, I feel like, at some point. But I've never been able to get into Dave Matthews' band. Uh, so before we get into the record and the band's career, I guess I'm just, just like as an overview question for all of us out there who don't get this band, what is it about Dave Matthews that we're missing? 
That's a very good question to ask. And uh, Dave Matthews is historically pretty divisive, you know, because I think everybody sort of, you know, under the age of, you know, maybe 45 at this point, uh, that was sort of part of the larger American pop culture zeitgeist. He was just ever-present. He was omnipresent throughout pop culture in the 90s and, you know, still to this day, but 90s and early 2000s was definitely... Dave Matthews' wheelhouse, where it was just, you know, every movie had a song on there, and every sort of uh, live event of the summer had Dave Matthews' band headline. And I think um, Dave Matthews just got so big, a lot of people might not enjoy it or might not have looked deeper into it as with anything else that goes on in sort of big stadium rock bands, you know. But for me personally, it's, you know, it's, a, it's just like a band like Fish or The Dead, um, obviously some fish heads and dead heads out there probably don't like Dave Matthews. Some people in those sort of camps really do. But, you know, it's a whole kind of cultural thing, I think. It's fun music. It's I think Dave Matthews is a great songwriter. I really do. I think he's a great writer. I think the science and the tightness and the sort of um, athleticism that this band has is kind of goes beyond a lot of different jam bands. Like They're just so incredibly tight. Their chemistry is kind of undeniably brilliant. You know, and I think even as a, even for somebody who kind of sits outside of being a fan of Dave Matthews, you can kind of just see, like, the, the amazing just workmanship they put into this music. Like, they're incredibly tight and, you know, stop on a dime sort of thing. But, you know, at the same time, it's not like Prague with a capital P or, you know, some sort of horny, ponytailed technical death metal thing that's sort of un- unapproachable by the casual music band. It's kind of music for everybody. I think it's like really fun. It's dancey and I and again I think Dave Matthews is a great songwriter and the live show is what kind of gets me every time. I like the studio records a lot. Um but their live recordings are honestly amazing and you know, they're just like any other jam band, you can go back twenty five years plus and find just, you know, a show for you or an era for you. And um they reached such a level of popularity. I get why they would be divisive. You know, they were one of the biggest bands of the ninth and of all time. You know, one of the biggest selling arts ever. So obviously, people are, you know, record heads or record nerds or serious music people would be kind of skeptical approaching Dave Matthews. You know, at this day and age, and I see it. But you know, there's a lot of things coming around right now. Yeah, it's dead and you name it. So it's it's all pretty exciting. I don't. Know, I love Dave Matthews. I think it's just. A fun, exhilarating band. Now, like, I want to get back to what you were saying about the ubiquity of Dave Matthews' band, because I think you're on to something there, where, especially early in the band's career, like, from the mid to late 90s and into the early 2000s, they really were inescapable if you were going to college at that time. Like, I was in college from 96 to 2000. I don't know when their second album, Crash, came out exactly, but I distinctly remember my freshman year, walking from the upper part of campus where I, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. So there's like a hill where a bunch of the dorms are, and then you go down the hill to where a lot of the school buildings are. I walked from one end of the campus to the other, and I literally heard that fucking album coming out of like a window continuously that entire walk. Like it was weird. <laughs> it was like Dave Matthews' band was like stalking me throughout the campus. And it was something that I think you know, I associated it with sort of like the broy part of college culture. You know, it seemed like every dude in cargo shorts, you know, loved Dave and would see Dave at Alpine Valley and talk about it. And it was just like, fuck that. Like, I, I want nothing to do with that. And, you know, now that I'm older and more enlightened and not as prone to judging bands based on who listens to them, because I think that's a problematic way, obviously, of judging music, you know, like I've come around on jam bands. You know, you mentioned Fish and the Grateful Dead, and those were groups that I didn't like when I was in college, and I kind of I came around to when I was older. Um, and for me, the entry point for both of those bands were the guitar players. You know, Jerry Garcia and Trey Anastasio were, you know, these great guitar players. They're playing awesome solos, and it was something that I, you know, I could connect with that. And it helped me kind of get into maybe some of the more sort of jammy or more difficult aspects of what they're doing. And with Dave Matthews' band, I was, you know, I was thinking about this. 
as I was getting ready for the podcast, and I was listening to the Lily White sessions, and I was listening to like the Red Rocks record from '95 and some other things. Like, what is the lead instrument in this band? Is it because it's not Dave Matthews, unless you count his vocals, I guess. I mean, is it is it the drums? Is it like the goddamn violin <laughs> or the saxophone? <laughs> Like, or am I just kind of thinking of it wrong and sort of contextualizing it that way? Um, no, I don't think you're thinking about it wrong at all. Because, I mean, obviously when this is a band like Fish, the sum of its parts is what makes Fish great. Obviously, you know, you need, you know, Mike on bass. You need the whole band together to kind of make it work. But, you know, Trey's solos just kind of carry everything together and you're kind of just like the shimmery thing on top that makes it work so well. Whereas you're kind of, that's a really good point. What is the lead instrument of Dave Matthews? Um, they're a really big band. You know, they're bigger than a lot of, especially now, you know, they have like a whole horn section stuff. But at its core, you know, the, the classic lineup was, you know, Carter Beaufort on drums, Dave on vocals and guitar, um, Roy Moore on uh, reeds and sax, um, Boyd Tinsley, on violin and uh, Stefan Lassard on bass, you know, so it's kind of, and they're, they're kind of an odd instrumentation, you know, a jam band to me is, you know, the classic dead with guitars, bass and keys and drums, you know, so they have violin and horns on it. It's all, you know, horn and violin and guitar all sort of have the same range. So there's sort of three uh, high range instruments sort of battling for that sort of spot. Whereas the low end is Carter Beaufort, who's just, you know, a fucking monster on drums. It's just, it's like the guys look at the castle on runner on drums. You know, it's just there's no sort of mistake with him. Everything is so tight. And Stefan Lazar is a great bassist. He's really solid. They work together really well. So you have just these um, opposite ends of the spectrum, both going insane. You know, it's not like a solid rhythm section like Zeppelin or Sabbath or something. Where it's just like we're the fucking low end, like carrying the shit. They're like they're they're going all over. It's like a thousand things are going on at once. So as far as the lead instrument, I that's a really good question. I don't know. But they all do their roles extremely well. Yeah. I think, and Dave Matthews by no means is like a lead guitarist. I think, you know, it's fun to kind of sidetrack here. When I was younger, um, Dave Matthews was pitched to me, the whole band, like, you know, because I'm kind of a second generation fan, I guess. I'm a little younger than the OG heads of like 94 Red Rock area or late 90s college Dave Matthews fans era. Um, so I'm a second generation fan, and the the band was pitched to me as just everybody in this band is a absolute prodigy at what they do. They are the best in the world, and obviously, you know, I don't. I think they're all incredibly talented and very special, but I don't think best in the world. I think they'd even agree. But everybody was pitched, you know, Carter Beaufort is the best drummer on the planet. Dave Matthews is the best guitarist, you know, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. And I think. You know, Dave Matthews is an amazing guitarist, what he does. I think people won't give him credit for it, but he's really revolutionary at the sort of guitar he plays where he has these really extended, weird chords. The guy has, he's not going to play like a Jimmy Page or, you know, Trey or Jerry type solo. He's not going to like rip all over. He's not that kind of guitarist. But, you know, he has this sort of flexibility and strange chords and just kind of ripping all over. And also just being a front man. He's just, you know, I got to say, as much as I love Trey and Jerry, I don't want to knock them down at all, but, you know, they're kind of, they're not really front men in the sense like Dave Matthews is. And I don't mean that in, like, marketability or something. I mean, Dave Matthews, like, guides that band completely. You know, he's, like, he gets, he does, like, all these amazing cues, whereas, you know, Fish and the Dead all sort of kind of fall into it. Well, when he's, like, doing those faces, like... Yeah, exactly. I mean, the guy's, like... <laughs> he's still, like, like he's scrunching up his face or... and, like, you know you know, really kind of drawn out his vocals and like, like that kind of thing. Yeah. And the guy's got a great voice, you know? And oh man, know, that's, that's, that's where we diverge, my friend. I hate it. I think he's got an amazing voice. Uh, I hate that's his voice. That's definitely where the, the two camps divide right there. Is <laughs> people either hate Dave Matthews' voice or they hate the sort of jock culture around him. And I'm here to tell you the jock culture around him is pretty nice people, you know? So I used to make blanket statements too, about all sorts of, but, you know, the jock culture is just, you know, it's, that's one camp of it. But when you go to a Dave show, you know, everybody's friends, everybody's hanging out. Right. Sure, a few more flip-flops than usual, but, you know, it's a it's a good crowd. Yeah, it, well, exactly. That's how these things always work. You make, you know, your blanket judgments, and then you actually go meet people, and it's like, oh, it's a good people. Like, 
why was I such an asshole before? And that's what I want to do with Dave Matthews Band. And I feel like I've done that with a lot of bands from that era that I didn't like originally. And then I kind of come around to at least having a grudging respect at some point. And that hasn't happened yet with Dave Matthews. I'm hoping it changes at some point. Maybe this podcast and, will be the, and, and, the transition. And just to add on to that point, and it goes back to it, the reason Dave gets shit on it is by, you know, record nerds or heads is because how big he was. Again, he was just not, he was just so um, part of society, like really right. just part of American pop culture. He was up there with like, you know, Bono or any one of those giant rock star bands. He was everywhere. But the thing I really love about Dave Matthews, and I don't know him as a person, and, you know, real pal around or anything. But the thing I love about Dave Matthews as a person is that his sort of rock stardom seems really approachable and nice, you know? And whereas, you know, somebody like Bono or, I don't know, let's say Sting or whatever, or even Kurt Cobain to a certain extent, who's just this damaged sort of outsider. Dave Matthews seems like a guy who's just, like, kind of down to hang and drink a beer. Like, they all seem like really approachable, nice people. You know, there's... And I guess, you know, every band has their problems and sort of melodrama and uh, sort of shit they're, you know, painting in the corner with, like, you know, they're cross the bear as a band or whatever. But they all seem like they're genuinely having a good time. They're very approachable people. It's not a ton of drama, you yeah. know? So I really like that about Dave Matthews' band as far as their, you know, image and pop culture is concerned. Well, let's walk through their career a little bit and set the table for the Lily White sessions here, give people... I guess the context of what led up to that moment in the band's career. You know, they form in 1991 in Charlottesville, Virginia, and you mentioned all the band members earlier. You know, you got Dave Matthews on guitar. You have bassist Stefan Lassard. You have the drummer Carter. Is it both Beauford or Buford? You said Beauford. Carter right? Beauford. And by the way, yeah, you you sung his praises. That's like the one thing I feel like everyone concedes about Dave Matthews' band. You, you know, even people who are like, oh, they suck, uh, but the drummer is good. So like people know that they have a good drummer. That's always like the thing I feel like about them. You have saxophonist Leroy Moore, who sadly passed away in 2008 in an ATV accident, or he got injured and he passed away after that. Then you have Boyd Tinsley on violin, who, and he was fired this year. Apparently someone accused him of like sexual assault or something We've, yeah he he ran into some yeah caused some trouble i guess so that's for another podcast they put out their first album on a major label in 1994 under the table and dreaming i remember my stepbrother gave me this album uh for i guess my i think it was for christmas that year <laughs> so it was already a big enough album where like step siblings were giving it to other step siblings during holidays it's like oh this kid's into music I'll get him a Dave Matthews Band CD. And I remember I sold it pretty soon after that and probably bought Vitology or something. Um, Damn. So Under the Table and Dreaming, I mean, there's a lot of hits on that record. What would you say, Ants Marching, uh, Satellite, big Dave Matthews Band songs? Like, How do you feel about the first record? Under the Table and Dreaming, I'm a massive fan of. I, I really enjoy all the early studio work. I mean, again, they were really young. They were just a college bar band, you know? And especially going out at the time, I guess a lot of alt-rock was big and stuff. But when you think about sort of the Dave Matthews scene, who else you got? You're like Blues Traveler, or what are those other kind of bands who could be compared to Dave at the time? I don't know. It was just this funky sort of college. Um, you know, the Dead was kind of starting to suck a lot live. I mean, Yeah, Blues Traveler was huge. That, that was like run around and... That whole thing. So, like, 94, Yeah, 95. and I guess for these bands who were, like, sort of raised on, like, 80s Dead and stuff like that, like Dave Matthews' Blues Traveler, and they sort of came out with these sort of funky college town things, you know, whereas I think the focus at that time, you know, was all, like, L.A., you know, do drugs or New York be grimy or maybe Seattle or whatever, you know, grunge stuff. You know, there's all these, like, little towns like Madison, and Charlottesville, Virginia sort of had like these bands who they saw as some sort of viable pop commodity, you know. And I love the early record. It's just it's kind of a sign of the times. Like that can never happen again now. Yeah. So I love that early record. Absolutely. So, and then you have Crash after that comes out in 96 and it came out April 30th, 1996. So that was like right before I graduated high school. And I think that was the album I heard when I went to college. Like, 
Yeah, yeah, that must have just been omnipresent in your life. Seven seven times platinum. Crashing to me is on that record. Uh, so much to say. I know that was a hit. I, I don't know. I'm looking at the uh, the track list. Proudest Monkey. I know that fucking song. Sadly. <laughs> Proud. Do you like Proudest Monkey? Who doesn't like Proudest Monkey? <laughs> Uh, I I don't know, man. I'm not I'm not with that song. You know, crashing to me again. I I can get behind that song. I guess. I mean, when it was in uh, um, Lady Bird, I I liked that. You know, I liked how it was used in that movie, and it kind of made me appreciate that song more. I mean, that song is so gorgeous. I mean, I think that everything has been said about it can be said. And I think you know when we were comparing them to other jam bands, you know, that is really a big departure point with Dave Matthews Band too. Like. Fish is not going to write a song like Crash Into Me, you know, like just this, you know, pretty ballad that. Even well, people, I mean. Even people, and, and I say, I mean that as a compliment, like, you know, the, the, that's like such a, that's a song that like anyone could get into. You you don't have to like be into jam bands to like Crash Into Me, you know, that that's like a no, real, kind of across the board song. No, that's kind of separates Dave. I mean, because Fish, as great as they are, and I'm a big Fish head and the Deadhead, you know, those bands are kind of. I'm not saying this to take down Dave or say he's not as brilliant as I think, you know, he is. I think Dave is really brilliant. But, you know, they can write top hits for the radio and, like, you know, Fish and the Dead are kind of like just ugly dudes, you know, just right. kind of dumpy. And, you know, and they were super into drugs and stuff. Whereas, you know, and they appeal to ugly dudes. And they appeal to ugly dudes like you and me. I mean, like, you can go to a Fish or Grateful <laughs> Dead show, it's a bunch of ugly dudes oh, well, in the audience. you're a beautiful man. Oh, well, thank you. And, yeah, I think you're actually very gorgeous as well but i'm just saying you know ugly in sort of the Thanks. theoretical sense or the figurative sense just a bunch of smelly you know lurk you know lumbering guys usually in the yeah know, make up a big like part of those smoke audiences. or roach kind of bands where, i mean <laughs> and i remember hearing dave matthews crash on the radio constantly you know and that was kind of a cool because fish was set up and presented as like you know their studio records are okay with their live show they just fucking split shit in half you know they do 30-minute versions of Lawn Boy or whatever, you know. But, you know, Dave Matthews, like, had these radio hits, and I don't think people knew, at least, you know, people like, you know, my cousins or sort of, I don't want to call people, well, I call them normal music-listening people who go about their daily lives and listen to the radio, who have, you know, no interest or care. You know, they, they can put on a Dave Matthews song, go, I really like this, and still be, you know, unaware of like their live shows are legendary and they do like three and a half hour sets and stuff like that well and that leads into the next record which isn't a studio record but i feel like it's pretty important for dave matthews certainly draws a live band which is the live at red rocks record which came out in 97 it's a record it's amazing yes from the 95 show i was just looking at the at the tracklist thing and getting back to proudest monkey the live version is two minutes shorter than the studio version, which I think is interesting. It's like Dave was like, I got to get out of Proudest Monkey. We, we, we played Proudest Monkey too long on the record. Let's get the fuck out of this song. Like, seriously, Proudest yeah, maybe Monkey? He, maybe he was taking your advice and uh, your criticism <laughs> of not enjoying the song too much he heard. I'm really just kind of making, I, I, I really just hate the title, I think, more than anything. But, but he's yeah, talking about know, like, how people are like monkeys, right? Like he's saying like, oh, like, we think we're so much better than animals. So like we're the yeah, proudest I monkey. Guess. Is that the is that the is that the gist of the lyrics of that song? I'd say so, you know. And uh, Dave Matthews, as much as people might goof on him, I think the guy's pretty introspective and a good writer. Uh, I think a lot of his, his best songs are kind of just about you know he really is self-deprecating in yeah. his music. If you listen a lot to it, there's a lot of self-deprecating shit and a lot of uh, pain and emotion. The guy knows a, a bad time and a good time. I'll tell you that. I mean, do you prefer the live stuff to the uh, studio? records um well it's kind of a toss-up i mean i like them both so much and honestly like any like hardcore dave matthews fan who's going to listen to this podcast will probably disagree with me i've because ever since i've announced this record like i've kind of keeping tabs on what like real dave matthews fans are saying um my favorite dave matthews stuff let's not go too far ahead but i like you know some of their later records a lot some of my favorite but the live stuff is incredible yeah i mean live at red rocks is definitely a really good introduction so like what they could do as a band and you know how energetic they are and I mean they're just like a fish audience and a dead audience is just like super fucking stoned in the amphitheater at Alpine Valley or Tinley Park whatever and not that Dave Matthews fans aren't you know but I think the crowd participation in their shows is incredible like, just like 
the huge just sort of like anthemic, like it's stadium rock music for jam band fans kind of contained within this sort of spiritual fun element that I really enjoy the kind of, I don't want to say transcends Fish of the Dead, but kind of like helps them go toe to toe and have a different approach to it. Just the, I mean, again, like the like the athleticism of this band is just incredible. It's like they, they're just, you know, whereas Fish and the Dead were chain smoking and shooting heroin in their eyeballs, these guys are just like in the gym fucking working it, and they're just so tight live. And Red Rocks is a great example. I think, you know, 95 is when they first became one, one of the biggest bands in the world. So this is like sort of a great document. It's like they're a great fucking rise, and they're at the top of the goddamn world, you know, like, look at where we've made it. And beyond that, they're just perfecting it, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, when you were talking about how, like, athletic they are, it just made me think of how, like, if Jimmy Buffett had trickier time signatures, I think it would he'd be Dave Matthews' band. I mean, I, I feel... <laughs> damn. You're going to do Dave like that? <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. It just came... I thought, like, I... Maybe that's going too far, but you know, I'm not there yet. I'm, you know, I'm not convinced. But you are making a very good case. I just want to say, like, this is a very good yeah, case. I think you, you're you know, making me want to listen to these records that you're describing. Like, I, I've listened to the actual records and I, I couldn't get into them, but like, the way you're describing it makes me like want to go back and be like, okay, I obviously missed something. So you're doing a good. You're making a good case. And as far as the the studio records go, I really enjoy them. Um, I think the songs are great. My only thing that I'm sort of against, which you have to look beyond, I guess, is that, you know, Dave Matthews band, they were getting, I don't know, I have to assume tens of millions of dollars to make records. And they sound like they cost tens of millions of dollars to make. Yeah. Just very high production value that might sometimes take me out of the sort of energy on the record that I know they're exhuming in the studio, you know, or exuding in the studio, excuse me. Well, um, well, the fact that you mentioned the production here, that's a good segue to talk about the producer of these records because it's Steve Lillywhite, which we is referenced in the title of the Lillywhite Sessions. Steve Lillywhite produced the albums we've already talked about, Under the Table and Dreaming and Crash, and also their third record, Before These Crowded Streets, which came out in 98, also debuted at number one, sold 421,000 records in its first week. It actually knocked the Titanic soundtrack from number one. Like, Titanic was number one for, like, four months. Yeah, fuck Titanic. And then Dave Matthews comes along and is like, uh-uh, this is Dave territory. Take a yeah, seat, Celine Dion, and then they go to number one. So, again, again, speaking to how huge this band was uh, in the 90s, like, they were as big as any pop star, like, at their peak. And really, like, I was reading that, I think they're the, they're the only group to have, like, seven albums debut at number one. And, like, that includes their most recent record, that came out in 2018, uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment. You remember the name of that record that came out this year? Come Tomorrow. Come the Tomorrow, it? yeah. So I assume, yeah, nobody remembers it. So, <laughs> so, so anyway, so Steve Lillywhite, again, he's a very famous rock producer. He uh, worked with U2. He's like one of the producers of The Joshua Tree. Uh, he produced the third Peter Gabriel record, the one like with the melting face, which is a great record. Uh, he did like the first psychedelic first record. He did like a Rush record. He did the only album by the Laws, which is a favorite of mine. He did Billy Breeze. Oh my God, one of my all-time favorites. That's another podcast. I would love to talk about the Laws. Oh yeah, the Laws, absolutely. God damn it! And I going back off. to Fish, he did Billy Breathes, which I think is their best studio record. Um, yes. So Lily White is a big-time producer. He was a big fan of Dave Matthews Band. Like you said record company giving them millions of dollars they're working with lily white who i think if there's a common link on his records you know they sound really roomy they sound live they sound really big he's typically working with like sort of big time arena rock or stadium rock people and he's good at i think translating a, a live band's energy in a studio setting and certainly i think you would say as glossy as those early you know those early records are Compared to like what came after this, after Lily White stopped working with them for a bit or was asked to stop working with them, they got really slick after this on their 2001 record, Every Day, where Dave Matthews was like writing songs with Glenn Ballard. And uh, Glenn Ballard, you know, from playing baritone guitar. Playing baritone guitar. Glenn Ballard, of course, he's like one of the writers of uh, Jagged Little Pill, the Alanis Morissette record. He was Alanis Morissette's co writer on that. And 
I think after that he did like nine lives with Aerosmith or something, or he did like some late '90s Aerosmith record. So very big pop guy, and Every Day was a big selling record, but the fans weren't as into it. And around that time, they hated that record, way too poppy. And around that time, there were also you know there was word leaking out about this Lost album that Dave Matthews Band had worked on in '99 and 2000 with Steve Lillywhite, uh, which I guess one of the working titles of that record was called, uh, it's like The Summer Thus Far or something? Summer So Far. The Summer So Far. Although I guess, like Dave Matthews said later, that that wasn't really the title. I think he wanted to call it Busted Stuff, which is what... Yeah, they eventually called another record. Yeah. Exactly. They ended up re-recording a lot of those songs on the Lily White Sessions uh, for that 2002 record, Busted Stuff. But anyway, this album ends up leaking on Napster in like 2001 and it becomes like this big hit among among fans and the idea was that basically Dave Matthews and the band they were like working out of this house I think outside of Charlottesville and Dave Matthews was, was like drinking a lot at this time and he was writing what he called like sad bastard songs and uh, so it's sort of like a more maybe downbeat record than some of the other Dave Matthews records and I read this thing this is like a Rolling Stone story from 2001 talking about this record and I guess like one of like the label heads talked to Carter Beaufort and was like are you into this record and Beaufort was like no I'm not feeling it so then the label was like okay well fuck it like we're gonna hook him up with we're gonna hook Dave up with Glenn Ballard and he's gonna write pop songs and then they put out Every Day after that and then Every Day comes out and Carter Beaufort's like I don't like this record either so it's like Carter Beaufort what the fuck you can't make this yeah, guy Carter, happy we all relied on you now you're fucking with us <laughs> But anyway, I mean, that's some of the background of this record. I mean, it was basically, I mean, like, I'm right, right? Like, th- these were songs that they worked on in 99, 2000, kind of sadder songs, and they were shelved. And, I mean, it seems like it's not clear if the label told them not to put it out or if the band themselves decided that maybe these songs weren't good enough to come out. Well, I don't know. I mean, records don't work out all the time. You know, somebody who makes records, I mean, I don't know. There's not a lot said about it besides, you know, they just weren't feeling it, it didn't work out. Sometimes you make a record, you work your ass on a, off on it. I mean, it's just like any other creative output. I'm sure you as a writer know this. Like, one day you'll be working on a manuscript. You're like, I'm a genius. I'm going to be known as the great writer of my time. And then the next day you're just like, wow, I want to be in a hole and I should have never done anything else besides, like, go to business school or something like that, you know? Right. So, you know, I think this is, I'm, I'm just projecting my own shit right now. I'm not saying this about you in particular. But I, I think, you know, records don't work it all the time. So this one got shelved and expanded and they moved on and they just sat on it. And I don't know the exact reasons why exactly. I mean, like, had can it. I mean, did you, like, how did you come across this record? Like, were you one of those people that, like, downloaded it in 01? Or were you too young for that? No, I was, I was kind of right on time. Um, when I was, I got into Dave Matthews, I mean, 2001, I was in seventh grade. I was in middle school. And that's kind of when I started to get into Dave Matthews' band. So any of you big-time Dave Matthews old-school fans out there, don't shit on me. I was in seventh grade. That's when I got into Dave Matthews. I'm sorry. It was 2001. That's the prime year. I know. But, you know, I remember sitting in, like, homeroom, and I really enjoyed... I enjoyed every day. That was like kind of the first CD I got because it had the music video with the guy in it who was hugging everybody. And I thought that was cool. So I remember buying every day when I was younger at uh, Sam Goody oh, wow. in Cherryvale Mall. I think I got it was like a gift card that I had gotten for Christmas or something. I don't remember. And I remember my friend brought in, I didn't, I don't rem- I didn't remember or I didn't know what a burned CD was. <laughs> um, that was like this is the first instance of a burned CD net. and my friend's like hey I burned you a Dave Matthews CD because his older brother was like a Dave Matthews fan who kind of got us into DMB we were funky suburban white kids you know this is how it goes and um, he, I remember being like is the CD going to be like hot when I it like temperature wise like is it going to hurt to hold or something <laughs> I don't know and I remember he bur- he gave me a burned CD of Lou I said she's like this wasn't supposed to come out and it wasn't until much later and my teenage years, I sort of kind of put these, because that was the first time where, you know, the internet and pop music and music record buying business merged, you know, so it was a chaotic time, obviously. So for a band like this biggest Dave Matthews, 
band to be like, wow, our records can be compromised. You know, they were pissed off and confused. You know, this is like when Metallica was big. And, you know, I wasn't old enough to know Radiohead, but, you know, like Kid A had leaked and stuff. And I think this was just a really wild west days of uh, the internet and music coming together and it just fucking baffled everybody. So this to be circulated amongst fans was very special for the fans, but I imagine, you know, Dave Matthews band was none too pleased about, you know, essentially their demos or rough recordings being leaked. And like, I mean, obviously it's, it has some specialness because it wasn't put out legitimately and it has that sort of illicit appeal to it that is always really cool if you get into like lost albums or bootleg albums but what about the music itself like how do you feel like these songs hold up you know just as an album um i think the versions because they went on later to put some versions out on busted stuff that are great but these versions of the songs especially like bartender i think it's just them at their absolute peak as a recording band you know and they're still great obviously but the sort of energy they have is really raw which is not what I describe the typical Dave Matthews band record to sound like is raw. I mean, I think of Dave Matthews band records, I think polished um, and like perfectionism and clean and has pop appeal. Whereas these recordings are kind of on the darker side for them. You know, the production's muddy and murky. His voice is like, he's making a lot of mistakes. You know, when he's doing his screams, they're kind of just like, ah, you know, kind of off in a very, I don't know. It's Dave Matthews, like, but in, uh, like, some sort of like anarchist version of it or fucked up version of it, where it's like there, there's finally a hint at this band being like insane people or not so well put together or not the clean rock stars that we had been presented before. This I think, is, and you know, the, this is kind of the first time I think, <clears throat> um, to my knowledge, that you know, this, any sort of uh, inner band drama was sort of coming out in the press. I just think the whole sort of environment around it and the sessions themselves and the music itself is just kind of um, the first time they sort of uh, veered from the path of being such a clean-cut rock band. And the music itself is amazing. It shows, like, all this sort of turmoil they're having. I think Dave Matthews' person was going through a lot because I think he was... In interviews, you could definitely see that he's not really happy about how his band is seen as hokey or you know, a party band, which they are, and that's how they, you know, put roofs over their head as being a party band for live people. But I think you want to be taken much more seriously. So these songs are much darker. And obviously you mentioned the drinking. I think a lot of that comes through. And we got a song called Bartender for Christ's Six. But, you know, you ask any sort of Dave Matthews fan, or at least me personally, I think Bartender's the, the best thing they've ever put to tape. I, it's like a long, droning, 10-minute sort of psychedelic Dave Matthews song. And I think it just has... Incredible peaks and valleys. So, Lily White Sessions, the energy and raw motion on there holds up for me, and I think it's my absolute favorite thing they've done. See, like, the way you're describing it again, like, I, I'm loving the record you're describing because I'm just imagining, like, oh, this is like Dave Matthews' band meets, like, Tonight's the Night, you know? Like, this is his Crazy Horse record. Like, they're drinking fucking tequila in the studio and, like, just, you know, getting dark and... And, and raw and all that stuff and i can kind of hear that when i listen to the record like I, I i know what you mean about bartender there's another song called grace is gone which is like another one where he's like you know pour me a drink and you know kind of like a drown your sorrows type type tune and like i, I can get into that i mean like a lot of it still just kind of sounds like late period sting to me and uh i like <laughs> no no disrespect to sting because i have some Sting records in my collection, but you know, very adult contemporary sounding to me. With, I guess, but like not as well recorded as maybe some of the other records. So I, so I know you mean like that vibe that you're talking about. I think it is on that record, and I think it's and it's fascinating to me that they decided not to pursue that direction. And I'm just curious, like, because you read conflicting things about this record where I mean you can hear that there's like hits on here potentially like Busted Stuff the first song is like a pretty catchy song I'm trying to think of like other catchy like like Digging a Ditch is like a pretty catchy number Digging a Ditch fucking and you're talking about you mentioned Tonight's the Night sort of Dave Matthews and that's a really good way to put it I think that's how I view this record um, when you put the lens like Tonight's the Night where it's you know 
all my friends are fucked up. I'm fucked up. Uh, let's do this like live and not committed to some, um, you know, analyze every detail of the recorded thing. Let's have the mistakes in there, which is when you talk about Neil, that's my favorite part about Neil. It's just fucked up spaces in between the notes you're supposed to hit. And I think that's where Dave Matthews and it kind of comes close to that idea here. And a song like uh, Dig the Ditch is just like, just so in the pocket with Carter and just, you know, get heavy on digging your ditch. You know, it's just like, that's kind of a Neil song. That's Dave doing Neil, if you ask me, is digging a ditch. It's kind of a chunky low-end riff, and, like, they're just in the pocket, and it's fucked up. And I, I, that's what I love about this record. It's just how damaged it sounds for Dave Matthews. Right, right. Any other tracks, like, jump out to you? Like, I mean, JTR's all right. I can get behind JTR. JTR is, like, see, that's one they never didn't officially on a record, and that's, like, a fan favorite. And I love JTR. There's kind of, like, this sort of high-life, um, you know, West African guitar rhythm to it. And I think that's just like a fucking group. They, you know, it's just so cyclical and hypnotic to me, you know. And I love that song, JTR. I think that's one, probably one of my favorite songs he's ever done. I mean, it's interesting to me that, and again, I don't know what the thinking was. If like, I mean, if you read between the lines about some of the background on the record, it sounds like Dave Matthews was going through some personal things, but he was also feeling down because there was an ex there, there, I think he got the feeling that people thought he was fucking up on this record that he wasn't like writing hits and that he wasn't sort of maintaining the level of commerciality that they had on the first three records and that and that kind of fed into his depression like it, in a way it maybe made it worse for him because he was sad that people you know, that he wasn't living up to people's expectations and that kind of made him drink more and it made him write these sad songs I'm just curious like why he felt that he had to even maintain that. Because, I mean, they were this huge touring band. They already had a lot of success. I mean, it, it seemed like they were sort of on that hamster wheel of feeling like, feeling like they also had to be like a radio band for some reason. And they obviously did that really successfully on that Everyday record. I mean, because I think there were like a bunch of hits that, that, that came off that album. But I'm wondering why he didn't feel like he could just sort of make any kind of record he wanted and know that, well, we're still going to be able to be able to play like stadiums, you know, you know, like like people like our records, but we're only we're, we're mainly about the live show. So no matter what we do in the studio, it's okay. So what? Maybe we should just put out this really dark record that our hardcore fans will dig. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because I think a lot of Dave Matthews fans hate uh, what eventually came out as Every Day or whatever. Um, a lot of, like Dave Matthews fans are like pretty much in agreement that that's, like, the worst thing. I, this is where people, like, actual, I'm not saying actual, like, real hardcore, old-school, 90s Dave Matthews fans think I'm an asshole. It's like, I love every day. I think that is an amazing record. And I think, you know, the darkness of the Lily White Sessions compared to, like, the lightheartedness of every day, you know, all you need is love every day, you know, there's like that. That's why people don't like it, because they want, they want a dark day. People like this Dave that's, like, super damaged, as much as people love the, like, you know, the big party ants marching day where, you know, he's doing the dances and everybody's freaking out, <laughs> I think, you know, real Dave Matthews fans really like this sort of side that he came out with on um, Lily White Sessions and that whole time because they never saw it before. And I don't think he liked people seeing that in him. You know, I think he wanted to actually just keep it kind of, let me have my personal life, let me have my shit. I don't like this idea of my fans knowing my personal life at all. You know, as much as he's put himself out there in previous songs, you know, he, a lot of his songs are very personal, but I think he's not very happy or fond of looking back on this sort of time of the Lily West Sessions where he was in a kind of a deep pit, as most people can be. I don't think that's something he wanted to share with the world at all. So he wanted to move on. I mean, do you know, like, has he changed his mind at all on that over the years? Like, does, has he talked about this since then and said, oh, yeah, that was pretty good, or I'm glad that came out? No, I mean, I think they're pretty much hush-hush about it. But at the time, you know, there's interviews. Um, you know, obviously when it leaked, he was at the peak of his stardom, you know, in the early 2000s. And he was getting interviewed by everybody left and right. And I think they all brought it up where he either dodged it. But when he wanted to talk about it, he's just like, I, why? You know, they, they seem, you know, I don't want to say pissed off, but they were just like frustrated. Because, you know, it's, again, it's just board recordings. It's, it's rough recordings that weren't finished that got put out there. So anything like that. You know, I'm on a much smaller scale, obviously, but if, like, my unfinished record came out, I'd be like, well, what the fuck, man? Like, yeah. 
So obviously they weren't, they were none too thrilled. And I still think to this day they're kind of none too thrilled because there's, Dave Matthews has these huge archives that are well known about, you know, just songs like this vault of recordings that is just sitting there. And every, a lot of Dave Matthews fans are just like, release that whole era of music. This is like the peak of your creativity. We want to hear this shit as a real fan. But they're just kind of pulling under it. So everybody's kind of waiting for a big box set or something like that from that era. But it's, it's well known, you know, like Steve Lewis and that we've recorded fucking. 120 songs nobody's heard about, you know, that are just sitting there. Yeah. So I, I think they're just, they're not too fond of that era. Now, I have to say, like, I'm still not sold on the Dave Matthews version of the Lily White Sessions, but I actually really like your record. Like, I like your versions of these songs more than Dave Matthews, and it's because you did them in your style more than more than Dave, and it was really interesting going back, and because I was, I mean, I, I heard your record... And I mean, I probably listened to your record more than the Lily White Sessions, even though I've had those files on my computer for a while. I'm just wondering, like, what was your approach to covering this record? Like, what were you hoping to do, and like, how did you go about sort of interpreting these songs? Uh, well, the whole thing started. Um, one of the guys who works at Secretly Canadian label that puts out my records. Um, we always kind of gone back and forth, you know, in like a, at the Christmas parties for the label and stuff. It's kind of like, man, I should do a Dave Matthews, because he's an old school Dave Matthews fan too. And we're kind of in, you know, the very vocal minority of Dave fans in that whole crew. It's just like, Dave rules, you guys suck, fuck you, you don't get it, you know, all that love. So eventually it was kind of like we talked about the Lily White Sessions a lot. I mean, to back it up, and I'll try to keep this whole thing short, is just, over the last five years, I've gotten way back into Dave Matthews. When I was a much younger kid, I was a big Dave Matthews fan, but I fell out of it for, you know, whatever reason. I got into, like, Pavement and Sonic Youth Records and just kind of moved on into being indie rock fans and stuff like that. And sort of just kind of put it on the wayside and forgot about it. Not out of spite. But, you know, the last five years, um, I started playing on Dave stuff, you know, because my brain has just gone insane the last five years. I've just tried to revisit a lot of things and I try to listen to music in a different way than I did when I was younger without so much walls around me or trying to be cool for whatever 21 year old I was around at the time or whatever when I was that age. So I started putting on Dave Matthews and the song Grace is Gone. My friend Brian Pinheiro, shout out to Brian Pinheiro, one of my best friends. We were at his house in New York City uh, about five years ago and from the AOL sessions, this is Dave Matthews playing Grace is Gone, solo on guitar. And he put that on, like, is this Dave? And he's like, yeah, man, I've been listening to this nonstop. He's like, and he's like a techno guy, you know, like, Brian Pinero's a hardcore, like, techno dude. Like, that's all he looks to. He's like, this song kills me every time I put it on. So since then, I've just been listening to Dave so much. And uh, eventually going on to my friend who works at the label, we talk about Dave all the time, trade live shows. And eventually he was like, hey, you should cover the Lily West sessions as a special project. Because my intention was, for right now to do a covers record no matter what but I couldn't think of the right covers to do and I got to thinking that you know doing something intrinsically cool like let's say I did like a Zeppelin record or a Floyd record or you know whatever band that is universally agreed that they're a cool band you know I I just I want to do something that was just more ridiculous and absurd kind of but not a joke and I'm a big Dave Manning so we're like let's go to the Lily White Sessions and so the project came alive. Um, my friend Andrew and Ryan both play on the record. They're really excited about it too because they were Dave Matthews fans growing up. And so basically, the only approach I had was like, let's do like, you know, what if Lucifer was doing a Dave Matthews record? Because that's the music we enjoy a lot. Is I think Lucifer and Jim O'Rourke fan, I think, and that's always kind of a starting point to how I like to write songs. But I just love their sort of arrangements and stuff like that, and just Chicago indie rock in general. Yeah. So those sorts of influences I have writing my own music, put that, put Dave Matthews to that filter, and that's kind of what came out. And obviously we wanted to keep them lighthearted and fun. And the big thing was that we didn't want to make it some sort of joke, like we're making fun of Dave Matthews or anything like that. And that's where, like, you know, the conversation, like, why didn't you do Crash or Number 41, Ants Marching, any of their big songs or just the main populace would know. And it's just, I don't know, I kind of want to do, what makes it more absurd, obviously, and more fun 
is doing songs that only hardcore Dave Matthews fans would know. Yeah. So not we have there's no selling single on here. You know, there's no big single like you know what would you say or anything like that. We're we're just doing songs that only the most hardcore Dave Matthews fans would know. And again, it's absurd, but it's it's really fun and it was a, a joy to do. No, I'm so glad you did it because again, as someone who knows about Dave Matthews Band and I, I feel like I I want to appreciate him and. I haven't gotten there yet. I feel like, well, this could be a good way to sort of midwife me into an appreciation of Dave Matthews. So I, I appreciate you doing that. I have to ask, have you had any interaction with the Dave Matthews camp over this? The Dave Matthews camp is very aware of it. Uh, Dave Matthews has the music. And um, beyond that, I don't know. Because uh, we had to get permission to do all these songs because they're unreleased. So the powers that be are very aware of it. And, you know, they, they kind of reached out to me like, what's up with this project we're hearing about? And so, yeah, the, I have uh, somehow bridged Dead Oceans Records in Dave Matthews' camp. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a nice, healthy dialogue going, and the powers that be know what's going on. And, and are they cool uh, with it? The man himself has the music, and I'm, I don't want to get my hopes up, but I'm hoping to become his best friend of all time and will become inseparable. Like, maybe he'll call you up and be like, Riley, I like your record, or something like that. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's my that's Dave Matthews' impression. That would be really beautiful. <laughs> well, dude, again, I really appreciate the education. It, 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 you know, we didn't agree on this record, but uh, again, I think uh, I think you might get me there eventually. I think you make a great case for Dave Matthews and the Lily White Sessions, and your record is really great. I think if you're not a Dave Matthews fan, because I'm not. I think you'll still like Riley's record a lot. It's really cool. So, Riley, thanks again. It's always fun doing these with you. And I'm excited to do another one very soon. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for anybody out there who's looking for a good live show of Dave, the Red Rocks box set is great. But also check out Live from Chicago, the United Center, in uh, December of 98. That show, I think, will transform you. And, uh, Stephen, I really appreciate your time, and I love being on your podcast. All right, Riley. Hey, man, take it easy. We'll do it again soon, brother. Absolutely. Dave, bless you. <laughs> All right, so that was me and Riley getting into it. Always fun doing Contrarian's canon. Derek, I don't know. I'm still not into uh, to Dave. <laughs> I, I, had a, I have a Contrarian point to make here because I think it's, it, it's interesting to me that you were – Highly critical of Dave's voice. I did, an, had, I did a very flattering impression. I thought. <laughs> I thought you could, you sort of had him as a leprechaun to me <laughs> in the impression. So like Dave Matthews' voice, uh, uh, pitchy and weird and annoying in yeah. your eyes, but like some acoustic Neil Young, you're you're here for that. Well, yeah. I mean, to me, Dave Matthews, it just has always stru- struck me as being very affected. You know, yeah. like and but Neil like, Young. So is Bob Dylan. <sighs> Yeah, I, I don't know. No, I okay. To say that you have to like all annoying voices, <laughs> I don't think is like a all good right. case. No, you know, no. everything strikes you as different. I mean, I would say, you know, Bob Dylan has like a range of expression within his nasally whine that is very wide and large, and he can sing a lot of different kinds of songs. And Neil Young, to me. Um, I don't look at that as being affected. I feel like that's probably just how he sings. It just doesn't seem as like. I mean, don't you think he sort of has he has theatrical. a different like uh, acoustic voice versus the like the crazy horse voice? Uh, you know what I mean? I don't know. I don't know. I feel like this argument will only make me hate Neil Young. It will not <laughs> help me like Dave Matthews. Yeah, you know? so I don't want to go down that road yeah, too far. I'm, I'm not here to say Dave is better than Neil Young or. Oh, that's, and that's, that's, that's the poll quote point. from this. <laughs> but but I do think he is a little underrated as a frontman, and I do think yeah. that, that is one of the things and I thought Riley was smart to point that out that separates Dave Matthews band from some of those bands that they're oh yeah absolutely I mean there's no question and uh and yeah and just his his ability to write pop songs is far beyond any one in the jam band scene of of that era for sure um and again you know I love to come around on bands that I didn't like for a very long time and I've done it before and you know maybe I'll do it with Dave I'm gonna keep trying but definitely check out that Riley Walker record, even if you're not a fan of Dave. Uh, his version of the Lily White Sessions is really cool. So uh, that is all for this week's episode of Celebration Rock. I want to thank Derek, the man with the plan, the man who makes it happen, the man who defends Dave Matthews and dismisses Neil Young. <laughs> thank you, Derek. 
thank you to Josh Copperman for writing our theme song. And thank you to all of you for listening to the show and for supporting us and for leaving feedback and for telling your friends. Uh, we wouldn't exist without you, so thank you so much uh, for being there for us. Uh, that's it for this week. Uh, we will see you with more Celebration Rock uh, next week. Take it easy. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.